if you're here and um, you think that her story and the brokenness of it is unique just to her and the rest of us are really not like that, the problem is, is we're all just like that. And if you feel like you're like that and you're trying to figure out how you fit in and how God fits into your life, then this is a perfect place for you. Because um, there's not a person here who doesn't have brokenness in their lives, in some form or another. And there's not a person here that, that or many people in here, I'd say this, are finding that Christ steps into their brokenness, just like Melissa has described. It begins to fill in the gaps. Begins to all the cracks and all the crevices and everything that doesn't seem like it works. He steps into those spaces and begins to go, this can still work. This is still very usable. You're still very worthy. And I love you deeply. And so if you're here and you're looking for something like that, if you're looking in the brokenness of your life to find something like Melissa's described, then Christ is that person. And you'll find him in many places, but you just happen to be here today. And he is anxious and willing to step into whatever is happening in your life and begin to give you peace in the midst of it. The, the problem that some people have with the church is that they feel like they make claims that they don't keep. Hear me well. I'm not saying that God takes away the pain. I'm not saying that God takes away even the, the, the consequences of decisions. I'm saying that he gives peace in the midst of all that. And not only that, he gives purpose to all that. He gives purpose to all that brokenness and to all that stuff that has happened in your life. And you'll find that you feel like there have been times when things that you feel like I've wasted my life because of this or wasted because I'm never usable for that. And, and you'll find that, that in God's purpose, he'll take exactly that and he'll mold it and fashion it for things that only he could do. And so there is no one in this room who is unworthy. There's no one in this room who is outside of his reach. There's no one in this room who, who he cannot relate to or he doesn't want to relate to. And that's true even for some of you Christians because some of you believe, oh God, I've, I've kind of put myself on a shelf. That's not true. Not true at all. There's no one on the shelf at all. So um, thanks a lot, Melissa, for sharing your story. The beautiful thing about sharing our stories is that um, what happens with that is we read the Bible so often, and once in a while, like Melissa did, she identified with a woman that had the issue of blood. But many people go, that happened so long ago, and I don't really understand that. And so they don't relate to the people always. But what they often do relate to is a young woman like Melissa here, an old man like Larry up here, you know. That relate to someone who's in front of them who's sharing their story. And they're not going, I understand that. I, I, can, I can relate to that. Maybe there is something to this for my life as well. So anyway, very good. Thanks a lot, Melissa. Appreciate it. All right. From the very beginning of the Bible, in, in chapter 3 of Genesis, you know, as soon as man enters the picture, it's not long after man enters the picture that fear enters the picture as well. And, and, and so you find that God has created mankind. He's put them in the garden, and then they sin, and the fall happens. And he comes and he says, where are you? And they say, I hid myself, for I was afraid. That was man's first reaction. His sin creates fear. I have another test for you today. Are you excited? I have another test for you today. All right, so this is it. Um, I want to talk more about fear and phobias. 
So I went and found the 10 most common phobias in America. And let me just start here. So the very first one, and I can't even pronounce some of these phobias, so how could I be afraid of them, all right? The very first one is murophobia. Murophobia, see that? That's, the, that's one of the first fears I want to talk to you about today. That fear right there, anyone know what that is? This, it is the fear of, not computer mice, the other mice. Those mice. But some of you are afraid of the other mice too. You know, some of you have double phobia in this area right here, all right? The next one should be easy. The next one should be easy. Aerophobia. Fear of flying. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's right. Fear of flying. Uh huh. I mean, like, you get on an airplane, you never want to sit next to that guy, do you? No. You're like going, I'll pay more. I'll just please move me, right? The next one is sinophobia. Anyone know what this one is? It is fear of dogs. Yeah. And it ranked on nearly all the lists. All the lists, which has surprised me. This next fear, some of you experienced last night. It is the fear of lightning and thunder. Yeah, yeah, okay? And some of your dogs did too. And all of you were underneath the bed last night. I know that, all right? The next one, I don't know if I know how to say this, is trinophobia. Trinophobia. Tripan, tri. It's that word. Does anyone know what that one is? It is that. It is the fear of needles and shots. All right, the rest of them are pretty easy. The next one is? The next one is? Claustrophobia. You know what that one is, right? That's right, closed spaces. So it is that right there. You know, you you get like that. The next one is Pastor Steve's favorite thing in the whole wide world, arachnophobia. Spider, yeah, that's right. Someone just hold hold his hand right now. Hold his hand right now. Yep, that's right. Spiders. The next one is a little bit different. I didn't know if this was the word for it, but it is fear of heights. That's right, acrophobia, fear of heights. That makes me want to throw up just looking at it. The next one I did not know either, fear of Ohio. (laughs) No, it is the fear of snakes. I really hate them. Growing up in West Texas, I had too many experiences with those little devils, you know, and literally, I mean devils. There. The next one is the number one fear. Everyone guess this just because you know it, but this is the name for it. Fear of speaking in public. That's right. It's this fear of speaking in public. That's right. Yeah. Very good. Um, two others that ranked it high was, this one was dentophobia. That's a real thing. I didn't know that, but that's a real thing. And then also, this one right here is chlorophobia fear of clowns. I don't even know how you get that out of it. Why wouldn't it be clownophobia, you know? But they make up big words for you. Okay, turn that one off. Kristen's about to pass out in the front row, all right? (laughs) Open your Bibles to Genesis 15, and the very first words in Genesis 15 are not the very first, but in the first phrase is, after these things, the Lord, word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear. It's really interesting that God is so in tune with our fear. Fifty-eight times in the Bible, he addresses fear. With these, I mean, actually, he addresses this phrase 58 times in the Bible. And he addresses fear in many other ways as well. But 58 times he says, do not be afraid, you know. Um, he said it to the disciples when he, came, when he walked through a wall, I would be afraid. But he said it then, he goes, don't be afraid. Many times he said it, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. He is in tune with that, and he understands that. 
Now, as you look at this passage, a couple of things we want to think about here is at Genesis 15 right here, Abraham now is between 75 to 86 years old. And we know that in Genesis 12, verse 4, he was 75 years old. And in Genesis 16, 6, he's 86 years old. So he's somewhere in the middle of all that. And then you notice also that in Genesis 15, 1 right there, it says, after these things, being good students of the word, being good students of the word, you know when you read that phrase that they're telling you that what just happened is connected to what's about to happen. So being a good student of the word, the next thing you do after you read those three words is you go back to the previous chapter and you go, what just happened and how does it relate to about what's going to happen? All right, so there's a little bit of Bible study skills taught to you right there. And so he says, after these things. Well, in chapter 14, what just happened, and I brought this up last week, what just happened was a war. Abram has gone and he's rescued all these hostages, all these captives. He's brought back all the loot, all the booty that had been stolen in the war. And he comes back and he's delivering everybody. And the king of Sodom comes and says, thank you so much for bringing everything back. I'll take all the people and you can have all of the riches. And Abraham, Abram says, you know what? I'm not going to do that because I don't, want to be, I don't want it to ever be said that man made me rich. That is God's, God's going to do that. So I don't want ever, ever to be said that you made me rich, King of Sodom, so I'm not going to take your riches. And so here we are. The next thing that happens after those two things happen, chapter 15, 1 comes in, and this is what happens. And God says to him, I am your shield. You just came through war. I'm the one who protects you. I'm the one who takes care of you. I am your shield. And then not only that, he says, and I am your very great reward, or your, very, your, your reward shall be very great. Very interesting, isn't it? That God is so in tune with all that. He has just turned down a great reward. You can imagine there was probably a great deal of wealth in what he had gone and captured. And he's just been said, you can have all that. And he says, no. I, I don't want that. And then God does the very thing that Abraham, Abram wanted. He says, I am your great reward. <laughs> That's, that is incredibly cool to me. Th- this phrase that he uses here is, is basically he's saying, stop being afraid. It could be fear. You know, you think about this. It could be fear of revenge. He's just went out and, and clashed with with four other major nations and kings who had kept the entire area um, in subjection for, I think it was 12 years or 13 years. So he could be afraid of revenge. But I don't think he is. When you read the context of the passage, I don't think that's what it is at all. I think that his thoughts are on the promise of a son. God says you're afraid, and Abram immediately goes to the concern of his son. So read the passage with me. Abram, don't be afraid. I am your great shine, a shield to you, and a great reward to you. And Abram said, O oh Lord, God, that that would give me, what will you give me since I'm childless? You see, he, he's not asking about, will you protect me if they come back and get me? He's not asking that question at all. He immediately goes to the thing that is in his heart that keeps him awake at night. The thing that is in his heart that he says, you made a promise and I don't see it coming true. I'm, I'm in my 80s now. You don't, people don't have babies in their 80s. He's thinking of all these things. You think about it. 
He says, people don't have babies in their 80s. Uh, Lord, I mechanically can't do this. You talk about seed for me, I'm a dried up old man. And that woman, ain't much happening over there either. I've never seen this happen. Where has this ever happened before at all, Lord? And he, and he does what we do, right? He goes, well, that can't happen. I'll never get another job like this. He says to your woman, no one will ever want to marry you again. Right? Bob happened. That's right. We say to him all the time, this will never happen. This can't happen. It's impossible for this to happen. And that's what Abram's doing right now to God. He's going, what? How is this going to happen? Okay, so I have Eliezer of Damascus. In other words, he has a steward. He has a servant in his home who probably was, had been very faithful and had been in his home for a long time. And, and he goes, okay, is this what I'm doing? Am I adopting him? Am I giving everything to him? Are you going to make him the heir? Because I thought it was through me. But I guess that's not happening. That's impossible, isn't it, God? And God says to him, no, 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 no. Verse 4, behold the word of the Lord. Any, anytime you see the word behold, there's you another little tickler, another little Bible study skill. Anytime you see the word and after these things, anytime you see the word therefore, anytime you see the word behold, the author is drawing your attention to what's being said. He's connecting dots. He's wanting you to pay attention. He's saying something is about to be said. Something is about to happen. I want you to pay attention to it. And so here God says, Behold, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside. And do you not love this passage? And he took him outside. And he said, Now look toward the heavens. And count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. The Living Bible says it like the screen up here. Then God brought Abram outside beneath the nighttime sky and told him to look up into the heavens and count the stars if you can. Your descendants would be like that. Too many to count. Too many to count. Here's a dried up old man. He's never been able to make a baby in 85 years, 80 years. And God's telling him that's going to happen. And not only that, he says, your descendants as difficult to count as the stars. God is giving to Abraham what Abraham could not give to himself. And isn't that the way he is? The things that we most want sometimes, we can't give ourselves. You, you think about that. We want worth. We want value. So as children, we look to our parents to give us worth and value. And sometimes they don't do that. Sometimes they give you just the opposite. And so what we can't get from others, he gives us. We look to spouses to give us worth and value. Sometimes they don't give that to us. And he gives us what we can't get from others. We look to ourselves to give us worth and values. I will work really hard. I'll get a title by my name. I will get a salary after my name. I will get a good address. All those things, all those things, I'm going to get all that because that's going to give me worth and value. And you come up at the end of the day and you go, why do I feel so empty? And so what we try and give ourselves, he can give it to us. And this is what's happening for Abraham. What he could not do for himself, God is now doing for him. In his mind, the only way to have an heir, a son, was to adopt one. And, and this is one of those tests. Waiting on God is hard. Believing that God can do things we've never seen or heard of is hard. And that's where we often get somehow or another inspired to say, 
I've got to step in and help God out. He's never had to deal with a situation like mine before. I've got to step in and help him out. And God says, I am your protection and I am your provision. Protect from what? You think about that. The shield is protection. And if we're not talking about an army, and if we're not talking about bad kings and invading armies, then what is he protecting him from? And what I think it is, is that he is protecting him, perhaps from poor decisions, that might be true, but I think he's also protecting him from his own doubts and his own fear. Provide what? He says, I'm going to provide a son. And in that moment, standing underneath those stars, something clicks for Abram. He understands. He gets it. He grasps the truth of what God has been saying to him. And what does the verse say next? Verse 6. Then he, Abram, then he believed in the Lord and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. Wow. This word, believe, it says that he believed the Lord. This word believed is, in in the book of John alone, it's used over a hundred times. Over a hundred times in one book. And that book is designed, it was written to tell us what to believe. And And it's summarized in John 20, verse 31, where it says that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That everything that Jesus was saying about himself was true. And that is exactly what is happening for Abram in this chapter and these verses right here. God had been telling him for years that you're going to have a son. I'm going to give you land. And in this instance, Abram believed about the son. He looked up and he said, I I believe that. Believe, it has this, this nature to it, this, the word, it has this, the nature of certainty to it. It has the nature of dependability. It, it, it is, this word is meaning to confirm or to support or to lean your whole weight upon. You know, imagine if you would with me, I'm not going to bother you today, Frank, I'm just going to take your chair. Imagine if you would with me, you think about putting your whole weight on this. I hope you can see this everywhere. Put your whole weight on that, right? Can you imagine if you weren't sure you depended on that chair? Can you imagine what that would look like? You know, it's kind of thing where you would kind of like not really, I mean, that's, that right there is depending. I'm trusting this chair, baby. It's got all of me, and there's a lot there, baby, and it's got all of me. It's bearing the weight. But if I'm coming in here, I'm like going, I'm not really sure if I trust this chair. Let me tell you something. Right now, that metal bar is in an uncomfortable place. And I couldn't sit here for very long. And then if I'm even going to move up further, I'm not really sure if I trust this chair. I'm sitting up here like this, and this gets tiresome. And all of a sudden, the chair isn't doing what it was intended to do. It's not bearing my weight. It's not something comfortable. I can't stay here very long. But when I put all my weight on it, and I rest in it, and I'm not bearing myself at all, I have believed that this chair will hold me. And Abram, standing underneath those stars, did that very thing. He came to a place where he said, I believe that I will have a son from my own body. I believe that. 
he rested all his weight on God's words in that moment. I just need to let you know, one time back in the community center, one of our pastors sat on a stool and it broke from out from underneath him. So that doesn't always work. That's a bad illustration. What's interesting here is that the, the verse goes on and says, and God reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. This term reckon is a bookkeeping term. Now, I don't know anything about bookkeeping. I know very little about numbers and finances. Carl can attest to that. My wife can attest to that. I don't know much about that, but I take it as being true that this word reckon means, it's like a bookkeeping term where you take an amount and you say, that col- it used to be in that column and I'm now moving it to this column. And what has happened here is God has taken his righteousness and now he's moved it into Abram's column. His column now has righteousness in it because he believed. That is God's mechanism. That is God's way that he works. That is the way, and and see, the whole world is trying to move stuff into the other column by working, by doing something. And, And you'll notice lately that what I've been talking about about this, this, this thing about belief, it is key, it is essential, and it is a stumbling block to most of the world. You, have you noticed that I've been using the phrase that what God wants you to do to be saved is to change what you believe? Because even in, in John 3.16, it says, God so sent His only Son that whomever believe will have everlasting life. And so He is not asking anyone at all to do something to move righteousness into their column. He's not asking anyone to jump hurdles, to burn incense, to slash their body, to to make a pilgrimage, to be in church every Sunday, to give any amount of money. He's not asking anyone anything at all, anything like that at all. None of that stuff has to happen to have salvation, to have righteousness transferred into your column. What has to happen is you believe. You believe that you can't do it yourself. The whole world is trying to move righteousness from that column into their column. They're going to Mecca, or they're going to Rome, or they're going to Buddha, or they're going some, They're doing something to move righteousness. And he says, you don't, do, you don't move righteousness by what you do. You move righteousness because Jesus did something that you believe in, and he died on the cross for your sins. Believe in that. And that moves righteousness from this column, from God's column, and he moves it into your column. And that's why I've been using that phrase lately. Because it is an issue of believing. But there are so many people that say, I can't believe that. And it goes back to the thing about the picture. It goes back to the thing about the story. We all want to be in the picture. We want to see ourselves in the story. Read me the part, Mommy, where... You know, read me the part when I did that. Tell me the story, Mom, about that time I did that. And, and if you were to say, God, God, tell me the story again about the time that I helped you save me. <laughs> and he'll go, that's never been written. That story doesn't exist. Because my son died on a cross to pay your penalty for sins. He's the only one in the story Johnny, do you want me to tell you that story? Well, you want to know something? There are so many people who are so intent on being in that story that they say, no, 
I'm going to write a different story. I'm going to write a different story, and I'm going to put my name in it. And a broken-hearted God allows people to do that. But at the same time, that same broken-hearted God says to those who say, I really like that story, God. I really like that your son is in the story. I really like that I benefited from the story. I really want that story to be mine. And he takes those and he says, and to those who believed, inasmuch as those who believed, he made them sons. He called them by his name. He adopted them into his family. He transferred righteousness from his column to their column. And today, if you want to change what you believe, if you want to stop believing that you can do it, if you're exhausted, if you're tired of trying to move righteousness into your column, stop. For he gives rest to the weary. And I think that that wearisomeness is to those who are tired of trying to move righteousness in their column. And he says, I'll give you rest. You don't have to do that anymore. It's already been done for you. Our chapter this morning has a very interesting structure to it. And you'll see here that verses 1, Abram brings fear to God, and, and, and God says, don't be afraid. Verse 2 and 3, God answers that fear, right? In verse 2 and 3, God says, uh, Abram says, what are you going to give me? Since I have no, so I have no, uh, no offspring. Actually, that's verse 4. God answers him in verse 4, and he, and he says, you know what? Look up into the sky. And I'll assure you. So you see, chapter 1 through four, 5 says this. Abram's afraid. God answers his question. And God assures him. You see, the same thing happens later on in the chapter. In verse 7, again, Abram comes to him and says, I'm afraid about this. I'm concerned about this. How is this going to happen? What does he say? Verse 7. The Lord said to him, I am, I am the God. Uh, he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to bring you to this land to possess it. And he says, Lord, how am I going to know this? How is this going to happen? So here we are again. Abram's got concerns. God addresses those concerns. He answers the problem. He answers the question. And then he assures Abram. So let's read 7. Through, see, read seven. Um, Abram says, God says, I brought you out of Ur, and I'm going to put you in this land, you're going to possess it. Verse 8, and, and Abram says, Lord, how is this going to happen? How, how am I going to possess it? Verse 9, bring me a three-year-old heifer, and a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, and a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he cut all these, to, he brought all these to him, and he cut them in two, and laid each of them opposite one another. But he did not cut the birds. And the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Ab- Abram drove them away. Now, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. But as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, and you shall be buried in a good old age. And then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For, in the in, in, when, for when the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. And it will come about when the sun is set that it became very dark. And behold, there appeared a smoking oven <clears throat> and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. 
from the river of Egypt as far as the great river Euphrates, the Kenite, the Kenazite, the Kadamite, the Hittite, the Pezzarite, the Raphim, the Amorite, the Canaan, the Girgashite, and the Jebusites. And then, so both in the chapter, it has these two things that are very similar. Abram's fear about an, his fear and concern about an heir, God addresses it. Then his fear and concern about the land, and God addresses it. But in the middle, in the middle of this, right here in verse 6, this is what holds it all together. This is what makes it worth, is that Abram believed God. You know how the passage has that in it? Abram believed God. And it's like the whole passage is drawing attention down to that. Abram believed God. Verse 7, he says, remember, remember where you were? Remember how I got you here? How I brought you here? I brought you from there to here, from Ur to Canaan. And then God restates in chap- and, and verse, he restates what he has already said in chapter 12, verse 7. He restates what he's already said in chapter 13, 15 through 17. As far as you can see, he says, is yours. And then another time in 13, he says, and, and your descendants will be as numerous as the sand. And he says, how will I know that I'm going to possess it? And the next thing that happens is strange to us, because it's, but it was fairly typical in the Middle Eastern culture of the day. And this, this sacrifice that just happened with all this bloodshed and animals and cutting up. And, and so you have all this bloodshed and these bodies split and separated. And in the culture and at the time, two parties were supposed to walk through those bodies together. And as they walked through them together, they were covenanting that among that shed blood that they were agreeing to something. And that covenant depended on the two parties to agree to it. But you're going to note one thing that happens in this. In verse 17, what goes between the two body parts? A smoking oven and a flaming torch. Think about this. Moses wrote Genesis. And in the Exodus, what led the people by day? Fire and cloud. By day one, by night the other. By day a cloud, smoke. By night a fire. Do you think that the readers understood who walked through these body parts? Abram didn't walk through it at all. Only God did. And so God is saying, I just made this covenant with you, and I'm going to give you heirs. I'm going to give you so many children that they'll be as hard to count as the stars. And not only that, but I'm going to give you land. And this land is going to go from there to here. And, and if everywhere you look, it's going to be yours. And then I'm going to make a covenant with you. And you know how this works, Abram, right? That post, both of us are supposed to walk through the body parts together. And that means we have an agreement because both of us have our part to do. God says this, I'm going to put you to sleep and I'm going to walk through those body parts alone. Because this agreement only depends on me. I've made a covenant with myself, which I cannot break that all these things are going to happen, that all these things are going to come true. He's just made an unconditional covenant with this man. God has made a covenant with him, and God says, I will do all this. But not only that, he goes on further in verses 13 through 21, and he goes, these are the details of how this is going to happen. Verse 13, your children will be in slavery. Verse 14, but I'm going to judge Egypt, this other nation. Verse 15, let me just tell you right now, Abram, you're going to die at a ripe old age, and you're going to be buried with your ancestors. 
And then your ancestors are going to come back to the land. And then God says in verse 18, to your descendants, Abraham, not to your adopted children, not to anyone else's children, but to your descendants, the one that came from your body, I have given this land. Look at the verse. It says, I've already given it. He's not talking in future. He says, I've already given this to you. In other words, the concerns that Abram had, God had made a covenant to seal them. And then he goes so far to say, this is how far the land will go. He gives boundaries. Let me ask you, what keeps you awake at night? Abram had this issue of an heir and of the land that he really, really wanted. And he had set his heart on it. It was his heart's desire to have that be true. What are your phobias, as we talked about? Most of us don't worry about snakes or spiders every day or flying, because we don't do that all the time. There are much deeper issues that when we can't fall asleep at night, they start like a mouse in a wheel, just running. Just running through our heads. Just running through our heads. And sometimes we can't turn it off. Sometimes we can't go to sleep. And it just runs through our heads. Abram had that happening to him, I think. And he went to God and he said, how is all this going to work? And God said, because I promised it. That's how it's going to work. You have that thing inside of you. You have that something inside of you that you want to be different. It might be a disease. It might be a relationship. You know, you can run through the gamut. You know what it is. And it keeps you awake and you worry about it. And you probably, just like Abram, you probably have times when you you feel like, I know God's going to take care of this, and you can stand strong, and you have a little bit of, of confidence about it. But then you go to sleep. Or you try to go to sleep. And those fears come back. And those worries come back. And they start running on that little wheel in your head. And you're going, how's this going to work out? I, I have to say that I was processing this for myself. And thinking about, how does this apply to me? Because I usually like for the word of God to apply to me when I'm talking to you about it. And this week, a couple of discussions I've had were with friends or people I'm discipling or I'm meeting with, and we were talking about the way that sin will always be present in our lives to some degree or another, and that Paul talked about a thorn in his life. And there are those theologians or people who write and they say, oh, well, the thorn was his eyesight because he talks about having bad eyesight. That was his thorn. I think that that's really, really wrong. Because in, in Romans 7, Paul talks about his sin in a way that he doesn't talk about his eyesight. And he talks about what a wretched, wretched man he is. And I believe that Paul's thorn was a sin and that God never fully delivered him from it. And Paul came to this place in his life where he finally said, that thorn, that area of sin in my life, that is the very area where God is most manifest. That's the very area where he is the strongest. And I've been thinking about things that we have in our lives or things that I have in my life and my own sin or whatever it may be, and like going, how does this ever change? Yesterday, I had a really 
terrible day. And it was all me. It was all me responding to the things happening around me. And I woke up this morning like going, this is never going to change. You, ha- you know this, right? You're lying in bed. This is never going to change. I'm always going to be like this. And I thought about Abram and his fears because that's my fear that I will never change. And then I thought, you know what? Abraham's answer was that God promised that he w- that, that was going to happen. And, Abra- and God's answer to me is he's promised that I will change. He's promised that you'll change. He's promised that whatever is happening in your life, he's going to take care of that. Maybe not in the way you envisioned it. Maybe not in the way that you want him to. But he says, he says, my answer will be my answer, that I'm going to take care of this because I promise to. So in your life, Christian, and you have that scenario that you're struggling with, he said in Philippians 1, 6, he says, what I started in you, I'm going to complete. That's his promise to me and you, that he's going to finish it. He's going to complete it. And yesterday, I didn't think that would be possible. Today, I'm still not sure. But he said so. And so my struggle, my walk of faith, is believing that he's going to really change me somehow or another someday, completely or better than I am. What about you? Where do you need to believe him? Where is he calling you to exercise faith? Where is he saying to you, I know it doesn't look like this is going to work, but I'm calling you to believe me and step out in faith and let me demonstrate myself strong on your behalf. Where is it for you? Only you know that. I'm praying for you like I'm praying for me that we will step out in faith and believe that he's working that out in your life. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we come to you, and I would love to say that we come to you because you are great and awesome, but there are times when I come to you because my need feels so strong and my need feels so overwhelming. Today we come to you probably in a lot of different ways where our need is really strong, where we sense you're answering prayer, where we are sen- we're here, we're celebrating you, whatever it may be. But we come to you today always in people who are your subjects, your children, adopted by you, seeking you, wanting to grow like you, being transformed day in and day out into the image of Christ. And this morning, I thank you that the promise that you made that you're not done with my life And the promise that you made that you're not done with the other lives in this room is a promise that you keep and that we live our life by faith because you are a promise keeper. And that is what we stand on. Abraham did not believe that he could have a son because 85-year-old men had sons. He believed it because God said so. And today, I don't stand here and say that I'm going to change because I've affected so much great change in my life. I say it because you said so. Help us all to find that place of faith, that thing that we need to believe about the promises you've made to us and say, that truth, that promise, I claim today as because God is, God's character is unchanging. His promises are always kept. And it's in your name, your faithful name, we pray. Amen.